to have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. It sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week on the podcast, I have on Mike Glover. So Mike Glover and his buddy started this company, Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, Fieldcraft Survival focuses on modern survival techniques. Um, it, it It's a great company. Their background is they're both veterans, um, special forces. Uh, they served in our military, and, and they, they just get this 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 hardened attitude this mental toughness about them and it, it's really fun to sit down with mike and have this real authentic conversation about you know survival and then and then the correlations that it has with backcountry hunting and he's really interested in backcountry hunting he's got himself a bow and he's practicing and and looking forward to some hunts and so um just a really neat conversation he's really intelligent and articulate and um just a really fun back and forth uh, i really enjoyed it i think you guys well too. Sponsor for today's show is Six Hour. So you may know Six Hour for their pistols, um, but they're also making optics too. And uh, their rangefinders are absolutely off the hook. They're um, they're rangefinders for the bow hunter. It has crisp, clean optics. It's got quick readings. It does angle compensation. It does. Uh, first priority, last priority, so you can uh, you can set it for first priority target. So the first thing it hits, it gives you a range or last priority target. So like shooting through grass, it's never a perfect world when you're shooting at an animal and trying to get a range. And to have to expose yourself high above the grass is where you get caught. Those animals bust you and see you. You know, to be able to shoot through th- some grass, have a strong laser on it, get the correct reading, and then believe in it. Uh, it, it makes you a better bow hunter. And so Sig Sauer makes some of the best range finders on the market. So I'm super impressed by those. Um, I'm really excited to get their binoculars and, and their spotting scopes. They have a mini spotting scope. So I'm really excited to get those in my hands and try those out as well. Um, so Sig Sauer, can't thank them enough for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, over there at Eastman's, um, we just got back from that podcast tour. Um, got some great recordings. We got one over at Onyx Maps and talked about some of the different features that you can use on their app. And I, I call them technology cheats, but they are just features that they offer. They just they offer so much in their app, and and I'm always learning. Uh, you know what I can do in different overlays, and 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 really. It's just a, it was a great company, great podcast, great information to get out to you guys. Um, Also recorded one with Jim Widgham over at Kenetrek Boots, and uh, that guy's just an animal. He's been on more sheep hunts than I think anybody I know, and um, just has has some great stories and is a great storyteller. And then then we go over boots and foot care, and it's a great one for prior to season, like, um, you know, what causes blisters and, and different lacing techniques and what socks are the right socks for the, for the right hunt. And, and we just kind of go through all this. And I, I don't think any, anybody knows more about boots and footwear than, than Jim. So that was a fun podcast. So we'll be releasing those coming up and, and, um, yeah, just fun to get together with those guys and, and, uh, be able to cruise around, record some podcasts and, and, uh, have some meetings and kind of talk over the future of things and get some direction. So, um, yeah, it's just a really fun trip. And, uh, other than that, just getting out some articles. I got a good one coming out in this next bow hunting journal. 
And um, we we do have an offer for the podcast. So uh, right now you can get a subscription um, with a, a Fox Pro game call, and it's a Fox Pro Bugle. Um, so yeah, make sure you check that out. Like after that podcast with Corey Jacobson and Dirk Durham, those guys that are that are really proficient at, at calling and bugling to bulls. And, you know, I just want to have, I want to have that in my toolbox a little bit more this year. I've called in a lot of bulls, you know, early in my, my bow hunting career. And I've kind of gone a lot to spot and stock, but to have all those, those tools available to you when you need them. Um, you know, I, I just think you're, you're going to be my more diverse in your attack and, um, more diverse in your strategy and, and, um, be able to have some other options. So, um, I'm excited to get one of those calls in my hands and uh, try it out. But that Fox Pro game call comes with a subscription. Uh, the subscription is just a great magazine to Eastman's Hunting Journals uh, and Eastman's Bow Hunting Journals. Um, man, every time I write for these magazines, I pour my heart and soul into my articles. And and, and I really – writing is this this way where you can really think about your words and construct your article, each paragraph, to tie to the other one. And you can read over it and, and reread over it and get it to, to – to, to sound just like you want it to when you release it. And so it's, it's really fun for me to write these articles. And, and uh, I always enjoy reading the other staff articles. Dan Picard is a diehard bow hunter. You know, I'm, I'm always eager to see what he has to say in there. And, and our other staff articles are great too. And they're always, they're always spot on what I'm thinking about as well. I do such a good job of packing each issue with that month's pertinent information for hunting season and so great magazine the mrs section has really helped me learn different states and and it just gives you such a a layout of tags and and quality percentage of public lands access um, trophy potential uh, you name it it breaks it all down for you and and kind of gives you a rundown of these states and and really it's it's been a big key to me traveling around the lower 48 and and putting myself in good places and and being able to harvest some trophy critters. So um, the MRS is worth the subscription alone, but you get the the magazines too, and then also uh, that Fox Pro game call. So uh, the promo code is Elevated Six Eighteen. Um, so with that, let's get to this thing rolling. Uh, really fun conversation with me and Mike Glover, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Okay, I'm live here with Mike Glover from Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, thanks for being on today, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's so many correlations between backcountry hunting and survival, and and you started this business, this Fieldcraft Survival, um, offering some some different trainings and some different programs. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the company that you have and and kind of what you guys uh, stand for and what your platform is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we started Phil Kraut Survival, when I say we, me and uh, Kurt Hohan, a former teammate of mine in Special Forces, we started the company uh, to teach survival uh, to civilians, military, and law enforcement. And typically, you know, the term survival was associated with bushcraft, which is, you know, rubbing sticks together in the woods, starting fires, shelter building. But we wanted to kind of uh, coin and focus on what we call modern survival, which is basically taking all of our experiences that we learned in special operations, which, you know, I think is a, just a, uh, uh, a series of events and experiences that you learn a hard, a lot of hard lessons learned and then translate that and teaching those lessons learned to civilians, military and police 
in order to ensure and kind of facilitate their survival. So, you know, our mission statement is to train in modern survival uh, to make sure that civilians, you know, and first responders uh, have the mindset, the skill sets uh, and the training in order to uh, ensure their survivability. And so our our, our premise or our uh, mission statement that we stand on as well is we want to encourage the urbanite, the person who, you know, is in, in their city, in their apartment, who's not willing to come out, to come outside and realize what modern survival is and then be comfortable with it. So, we, you know, we do a lot of education in this in that genre. Man, I can see why your company's doing so well. It fills such a great uh, niche. And, and also, like, it, it is um, the modern survival. So does that does that also, um, you know, work in cities and in reading scenarios? And I know always traveling. Like, uh, the, there's always uh, sketchy situations that you kind of get yourself into, not knowing the town you're in or the city you're in. Does it encompass that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think – you know, the interesting thing about modern survival is when you're just talking broadly about the genre, um, there's a whole bunch of things prior to even learning specific skill sets, like in this example, urban navigation, for example, that need to be taught to the individual prior to understanding that experience. So the, the takeaway would be like, you know, when you when you take a soldier or you take a civilian and, and you're making them a soldier, you start with basic training. And then you do a little bit of advanced training and then through that person's experiences in the military and through their own training evolving, um, they become, you know, a sp- potentially a special operations guy where they're um, they're dual hatted in a whole bunch of skill sets. So before we even talk about skill sets, we try to encourage people to understand the mindset. You know, some people coin it as warrior mindset. Some people some people talk about it as a, uh, you know, a certain kind of fortitude and willingness but you have to have those mindful skill sets prior to even uh, encompassing skill sets that are individually taught because you could have, you know, you could have all the skill sets in the world in your kit bag. But if you don't have the willingness to survive or you don't have the mental fortitude, then potentially you're setting yourself up for failure in the first place, no matter how much training you do um, after the fact. Oh, that's so true, Mike. That's the the same thing that I'm constantly preaching about uh, in a public land hunting and backcountry hunting is the mindset. You know, we've had an entire podcast just on the mindset. And like you say, it's the foundation of learning. You have to have that prior to, to anything else. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, you don't teach specific skills to start with. You start with the with the basics, having the right mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, it's interesting because – you know, our, our worlds, which are, are, are separate, actually combine in some great ways and they're, they're very complementing of each other. And, you know, I, I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing this now of actually having the time and the freedoms, um, to exercise those, those freedoms, like getting out in the backcountry and hunting, for example. Um, you, what I, you know, I didn't have the time allocated before, but now that I'm getting into it, I'm realizing that the same preparation, the same mindset, even the same individual skills that you need to train, although, you know, different and varied ways are all complementary of each other. And, you know, like right now I'm prepping with a bow, you know, I have a bow tech and I'm shooting it daily because um, leading up to hunting season, I want to be prepared and, you know, give that um, animal an ethical kill, but also do it for myself to where I'm giving my best in that hunt 
And that it goes along with the physical training required, the technical training. And then as I'm, you know, getting up to that hunt in that training phase, I'm developing this mindset and all the mistakes that I'm making and the resiliency that's required in the physical training. It's like I'm building up this framework all to be executed on the actual hunt. So it, it all correlates and it's all similar and it's all uh, great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, parallel universes for sure. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's so neat because it is. It um, you have to set your mind to it, and that's that's always been the key to to guys that are consistently successful. Is they just set their mind to that they're gonna be successful. They're gonna do whatever it takes. They're gonna continue to put on the miles. They're gonna continue to push, and you. You have these these tests or these hurdles, you know, and whether it's it's hurdles, you know, in your safety, trying to keep safe back there, that'll that'll test your commitment. And, and you're also you're going to get exhausted. You're going to be sleep deprived. You're going to want to quit and you have to keep going and keep pushing if you if you want to find success or at least consistent success. So, yeah, there's so many correlations and good for you uh, practicing up with that bow and getting ready for hunting season. Uh, it's It's such a great test. And I love like you say, all the preparation that goes into it, working at, at each and every facet to prepare yourself for this backcountry test where you get 10 days to, to solo back in the, in the wilderness and test your skills and your resolve. And, and I just, I love that. It's absolutely what I live, or live for. So congratulations to you, uh, picking up the bow and going for it. Oh, no, thank you. I, I, you know, you guys have set the way and, you know, I, I look at my career in special operations and I, I think about uh, mission success and uh, the the correlation between mission success um, and the men is the fact that all the men, the individual skill sets, their individual drive, um, really their you know their their sole proprietor universes of being the best that they could be, and then culminating in a team effort is what makes um, the mission uh, so successful in the first place. So. You know, I, I could see it in the way we isolate training and the way that we teach mindset and then the way we execute it on the battlefield. It's the same exact correlation in, in hunting and in, in some ways even more so because, you know, what's defined for us in the military is in a deliberate operation. You're going to have a lot of information, a lot of intelligence, and you have a whole bunch of information that's going to guide you in the right direction. And you have a whole bunch of outs Right. For survival, if something goes wrong, you know, we have a quick reaction for. So we have a medevac platform where we have um, these elements that are designed to rescue you when things go wrong. And what I've realized in hunting, especially, especially backcountry stuff in the mountains of, that I'm used to in Colorado and, um, you know, Montana, Idaho, is that if you get in a crunch, um, you really are a lone operator uh, and you have to be prepared and you have to be. Um, you know, resilient in order to survive your own demise because nobody's going to, nobody's going to send a QRF full of Rangers to come rescue you. It's going to be you bailing yourself out. And that kind of independence is unique, even in the military special operations space. It's something that, that definitely you have to train for. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it's it's wild. Um, yeah, like you say, the the right mindset and resolve, and it it is. Um, you, you also like you talked about having a bunch of uh, intelligence or a bunch of information out there, and I I think you know experience is definitely the best teacher, and and once you experience something, you really learn from it. But but also preparing yourself mentally for those scenarios, you know, really helps me out, and so. You know, like when I'm going into a backcountry hunt, like I'm preparing myself mentally for when I get in those bad lightning storms. You, you know, what's what's my protocol? What am I going to do? Okay, I'm not going to get caught on the ridge lines and the peaks. I'm not going to camp up there. I'm going to drop a thousand feet down. I'm going to get into a small patch of timber. You know, I'm going to read the weather as it's coming in, and I I really try to prepare myself for these hurdles that I'm going to face. But while doing so, it seems like there's always something that comes up that you haven't thought about or you haven't prepared for that then you have to kind of adapt and evolve on the fly you know and figure that out and that problem solving but but yeah it's one of the reasons why i like backcountry hunting so much is it is so difficult and so challenging and it, it does it tests your your commitment and your resolve you know constantly throughout the whole entire hunt yeah i think that's a i mean that's a magical experience and i think the more it's almost it's it's odd but it's similar to the same exact longing that I long for when I'm talking about missing, you know, the guys or missing the army. I don't really miss the army. I miss the experiences with the guys that I was with, but also the challenging missions that we were on because you can't replicate that experience. And then when you're high country hunting um, or even a reconnaissance, if you're, if you're just glassing, there's an experience that takes place that can't be replicated in a, in a culmination. And so when you, you sit down and lay your head on your pillow or you, you kind of reflect on those experiences, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, it's typically romanticized, but it's for a reason because it's a, it's a romantic event and it's, it's very passionate. Um, and, and it, it can't be duplicated. It, it's nothing that can be duplicated. Um, and the only way you can get close to it is by doing it. And, you know, like you said, when things go wrong, you got to be prepared. You know, in special operations, we plan for what's called contingency-based planning. You know, we we plan for every single primary plan to go wrong, and for us to have a backup alternate plan uh, that's substantial that that could actually uh, see us through. And so, when I look at something like that, even as individual as you know, land navigation or weather. All these little points of data have to have primary plans and alternate plans that are built in. And no matter how much you plan, you know, it's that Murphy's Law thing. No matter how much you plan, the initial plan is going to go out the window. The primary plan is going to go wrong and you're going to have to go into your alternate plan. Um, And that's typical because there's so many different variables of things that could potentially go wrong. So you have to be prepared. Man, um uh, the military does such a great job of tra- tra- training and preparing you guys for these missions. And then like you have so much experience being on these different missions and, and having things go wrong. It's it's really fun to to talk to you and get your insight into it. But, boy, I sure wouldn't want to go against our military. <laughs> they got you guys ready. Yeah, they're trained in numbers. They're trained in, uh, in numbers. And, and it's uh, what I've re- realized is that he, the big advantage of the military is – uh, we actually call it the military decision-making process or MDNP. What I've realized is what the Army taught me more than anything is the ability to plan. 
And so that plan is applicable to business, um, to a career path, uh, to, to hunting in the backcountry. And as long as you follow kind of that uh, protocol or that deliberate planning process, um, you're going to be successful. And I, and I think it's designed to set uh, everything that you apply it to for success. And I, I think that's, you know, when we're talking about survival and contingencies and everything else, and I think that's that, that that's what leads people into doing things that are wrong because uh, people want to take shortcuts. And so when you take a shortcut in planning, for example, um, that's when uh, on the execution side, uh, things start falling apart. And I, and I think the military is very good at that deliberate planning, planning process and setting people up for success. Well, and, and all those skills, they, they transfer over into life skills like it, it is. It's preparing a mindset, and it was, you know, it's the same way, you know, the same lessons that I learned. You know, my correlation, you know, was, was wrestling, and I learned that, you know, the, the more hard work you put into something, the more you could achieve. And I, I started, you know, effort did equal success when I work hard at it, which taught me a lot of good lessons. And then early in life, just in the in the job force and working construction and trying to work your way up and and pay attention and learn and trying to, you know, make more money to provide a better lifestyle and then going into business on your own, like all those those experiences, they, they teach you and shape you in life to who you are. And, and the same thing with you guys that, that go such a, go through such a grueling training process, but, but they teach you that mindset and the, that mindset just carries over into life and why you guys are, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. So, so how you did the military is how you attack life and, and, in the same way in, in every, every facet of your life, the way you take care of it. But yeah, that's, uh, that's so cool because, um, it's so spot on. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I love it. I mean, I mean, I love the fact it's funny that you even said about the wrestling thing because most guys that I know in special operations or even that are successful hunters have some background experience in kind of organized sports and they understand what it takes because of discipline um, because of uh, you know the incentives of rewards and, and what it what it takes to to fail you know what, what that's like to get up after a failure and to, to accomplish a win so it's it's all interesting stuff how it all ties into each other yeah and and you know if if you want to succeed at anything you have to fail <laughs> you you fail more than most people try it seems like you know and um you have to be willing to feel like I, I relate it to like backcountry stalking, like stalking those mule deer. They have such great senses, their, their hearing and their sight and their smell. And, and they've evolved from thousands of years of avoiding mountain lions that want to jump on them from a, from a mountain cliff, you know? And so those things are switched on. And so you're just not going to win all the time. You're going to fail. And especially with a bow and arrow, trying to get within a stone's throw and make an ethical shot, you know, you're going to fail and you're going to have to pick yourself back up. And whether that's a failed stalk or a failed shot and it's amazing what that fog of adrenaline will do to you too you work so hard towards a goal and then that goal is right there in front of you like like all of a sudden you get that surge of adrenaline and you, you're in this this fog you know and, and trying to trying to keep your head clear and make good decisions and keep yourself calm is extremely difficult and it takes failing at it multiple times before you start to wrap your head around it and start to you know have mantras that you say in your head and ways that you you breathe before it happens and and breathe even 
even during the shot to to execute a good shot but but yeah it uh it, it is just so important you have to fail if you want to be successful and i i think that goes for anything yeah absolutely i, I love that uh that understanding it takes a, you know it takes a lot of um it takes a lot of understanding but a lot of self-awareness for people to understand that that in order to be successful at anything in life, period, you, you know, personal relationships, career, hunting, you, you have to be prepared to fail. And it's, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of sayings out there, but one of my favorites is, you know, it's not about, you know, it's it's about what you do after you failed. You know, it's in that it's in that moment, you know, that you're on your knee and that, um, you know, you failed. It's what you do right at that moment to pick yourself up and and, you know, create this mindset of moving forward um, that's going to really define your life and define how successful you are at everything that you do, including hunting. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, de- I definitely uh, am a firm believer in that. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, things can go wrong. And whether it's on a hunt or whether it's in life, like it, you're, you're going to have things that go wrong and things that go bad. And it's going to feel like sometimes like you're getting bad luck or, you know, why is this happening to me? But you've got a couple different choices, you know. You can you can sit and you can you can worry about it and and uh, but but really, you know, your next move is to make a decision and make a game plan, do the best you can, and then execute it and move on and try to not let that bother you. But but yeah, that that getting up from from failing can be so difficult because it's you know bow hunting it. It's so cool because it'll take you to your highest highs when you're successful and you put in this hard work and it pays off. But then, you know, the the adverse is, is it, it'll also take you to your absolute lowest low. And being able to pick yourself up from that is extremely difficult, but but necessary. Yeah, I don't think we, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's like understanding what the jubilation of, of being on top of your game at the highest peak that wouldn't be a great moment if you weren't at your lowest, if you weren't crawling yourself out of a draw or out of a valley, you, you wouldn't even know what that felt like. So um, it, it would be irrational to even understand or to, to uh, believe that everybody who's at the top of their game or who is successful is somehow staying at the top. Uh, in fact, I would say that more so those people that are at the top have them have had the most significant ebbs and flows of failures and successes um, but they've created the right path and mindset and picking themselves up. And like you said, you know, one of the things, things you say that stands out is it's a choice. We, we all have a choice to pick ourselves up and to move forward. And uh, what I see most often in people who, um, you know, who are anxious or fearful is they are loathing in this indecision point, this gray area between, um, you know, making a decision and not making a decision. And the more so they dwell on it, the more so uh, that they get more fear, more anxiety, and, and it kind of like crumbles in their world. So when you stand up and you have the opportunity to make a choice to move in the right direction, to pick yourself up and be successful, to me, that's an easy choice. And I don't spend a lot of uh, lull time dwelling or loathing or feeling sorry for myself. I'm going to pick myself up immediately uh, regroup, reorganize, retrain if I have to, and then uh, try it again until I'm successful. Absolutely. Well, in, in uh, learning from those failures too, you kind of got to – 
you know, you, you don't want to dwell on them or waller in them, but you do want to learn from them because, like you say, failure is a prerequisite to success. You know, you're going to fail, and, and when you do, it's easy to kind of let your ego get in the way and just make an excuse for it. Go, oh, the, the wind changed, even though you know it wasn't the wind. It was you moving too quickly, and you didn't – or, you know, you didn't execute right or whatever the case is. But I always know I have to kind of let my ego go a little bit and go, okay, what went wrong there? Like, how come I messed up? How come this didn't – work out for me like where where were the mistakes I, that were made and where could I improve next time and so you don't want to get caught in that indecision you make a decision you execute but if it doesn't work out like like learning from it and and, and really paying attention to it and trying to get the next one right I think is such an important process you know of all of all things in in life and in backcountry hunting yeah it's that good balance right it's that good balance of being self-critical without being over analytical and destroying yourself because <laughs> it's that I've seen a lot of people, you know, who are, who are great hunters or great shooters or great tacticians. And then they fail and, and they're, they're the best at beating themselves up to the, to the extent uh, where it's hard for them to recover because they, they've done, they spent the majority of their, a lot of time on destroying their own, their, their own self and their own worth. And I think, um, you know, being a modest, being modest in that space and then uh, understanding critically, like you said, you know, having, you know, having the self-awareness, but also uh, not the ego to self-assess yourself and to see how you could critically be better. You know, one of the things that we do in the military is called an after action review and uh, an AAR is something that we do all the time in special operations after a mission or, or after something that uh, uh, potentially goes wrong. And we don't spend a lot of that time concentrating our efforts on what we did right. Instead, we, we try to concentrate our efforts on what we did wrong and then ways to improve it so the next time we're, we're better. And that, that practice needs to be applied in everybody's personal life, you know, your business life or you know, your professional life and, and hunting. You're right. It's such a fine line, isn't it? Uh, the the humans were such a, a complex species in the, the the workings of our brains. You know, it just uh, the confidence and and ego and also overconfidence and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, we we are such complex systems. You know, trying to figure out the the best way to you know to to wire ourselves or wire our brain. You know, is it, it's it's pretty wild to think about. It is. It is. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So the the first step you would go in training then is is definitely mindset, resolve, um, uh, discipline, like setting setting your plan in place. Like like what would be the the next step if we were to to relate it to backcountry hunting? You know, I, I think the next step would uh, concentrate your efforts on the physical body. Um, I think you know outside of mindset, I, I think physical training. And mindset go hand in hand. When, when people ask me, you know, we, we run special operations preparation courses where we prepare civilians who are getting ready for service. Um, and, and, you know, we have guys who show up and gals who show up that just want to improve their, their mindset. So not necessarily going into special operations, but overall just to improve themselves, um, and their resiliency. And I get asked often, how do I do that? And, and how do I do it? deliberately. And my answer to them is you could do it every single day in the workouts that you do uh, on a daily basis. Because if you do the right workouts 
and you identify some of the points in which you're weak. For example, if you're not a runner and you decide to go for a run, at some point your body is going to stop and say, hey, listen, I don't want to run anymore. We need to stop this. And and that is a, a an important window into your resiliency because basically your body's weak. Your mind potentially could be strong. But if you stop right then and right there and you say, okay, when I at the first sign of weakness, at the first sign of pain or suffering, I'm going to stop. Uh, that's defining and, and creating a resilient mindset, because if you push past that point, it's a, a reward that, you, that you're giving to yourself, including your ego is part of that. But more so uh, that that part of your brain that is like um, the shield that protects uh, the willingness and the abilities for you to survive when things go really bad. And so when you net, when you do feel pain in the real world in a survival type situation that might be catas- uh, catastrophic or maybe not just discomfort, uh, you'll have better resiliency to deal with that. And every single day that you do physical activity, it's an opportunity for you a- to identify a weakness, but also build that resiliency in your mindset. Yeah, it's spot on. Um, absolutely. Like, uh, uh, it, it teaches you that's how you you teach resiliency you can't just decide you're going to have a strong mindset you have to execute it and and you have to go through these hardships of, of pushing yourself and, and wanting to keep going and even you know even the discipline to make yourself do it every day it's really easy for your brain to work up an excuse oh i'm too busy or oh i have to do this or i have to do that but to get yourself out on the trail or out in the gym every day starts building that discipline and that resolve so when you're in the backcountry, you're you're going to go over the next hill and you're going to push over that. But yeah, that's how you teach yourself is through those hardships. You you teach these these calluses where you just don't let yourself come up with that excuse. You you keep running and you finish your run. If you set out for for eight miles or whatever it is, an hour in the gym or you know pull ups, push ups, you know wh- whatever it is, and it it's good to be diverse too. But yeah, that working out is so important and it gives you such confidence. You know, in the backcountry and, and confidence in life too. Like, um, it, it it's so parallel. You know, not only survival and backcountry hunting, but also life. You know, it it strengthens you, and you go through these these hardships and these tough times, and all of a sudden, you know, that that problem at work isn't such a big deal. You know, I I'm not sweating, dying, and I've got you know ten miles to go without water. Whatever the case is, it just doesn't seem as difficult. It doesn't seem as important and and I think it's you know it's also the way us humans are designed uh, that that physical exercise is good for us you know and it, it it's good for us both physically and mentally yeah you know I it's it's interesting because uh, people don't typically correlate the two I mean it's not it's not typically correlated but more so uh, you know in in different industries they're obviously realizing that how important they are uh, complementing each other I remember when I was in the army, actually early on in my special forces career, uh, in actually in special forces training, I remember doing, for example, uh, an obstacle course and the obstacle courses would typically take you above 20 something feet right on the cusp of you, you know, realizing your, your, your systems realizing that it was an unsafe distance from the earth. And then all these things would kick in. You get vertigo, you would get fear, fear responses, Cortisol levels would shoot through the roof. And I I always thought to myself, I said, you know, I, I'm scared of heights. Like, 
my, my, my body, I know my fears. I'm scared of heights. Well, as I started to develop, what I realized uh, in building my upper body strength is I wasn't scared of heights. I just didn't have confidence in my physical abilities to save me at those heights. So if I was climbing a rope above 20 feet or if I was cr- climbing a cargo net above 30 feet, I would be intimidated because I didn't have that confidence that my physical upper body would be would save me in the instance that I would potentially fall. So when I started building my physical strength, I realized that my confidence built in my mindset. And then I realized I wasn't afraid of heights at all. And if I was, it was temporary because now I had the confidence to get over these obstacles because I had the upper body strength to do it. And so it was literally me analyzing critically, you know, my my physical body, getting improving my physical game and that directly correlating and translating to a better mental resolve. Oh, that's interesting, Mike. So uh, the confidence comes from from uh, confidence in your abilities, like uh, training and being prepared for the scenario and confidence in your skills. And like you say, I, I trail run so much that I have so much confidence in my legs and my balance. And, and, and you know, I've, I've free climbed enough and heights don't really bother me that I've got enough confidence in my skills to know what I can get down and what I can't get down. And so I can make this this very clear decision on what's safe for me and what's not. But that's really interesting with the upper body strength and how pretty soon you had confidence in your upper body that you knew you had the skill set to save yourself up there, to catch yourself. You had confidence in your your grip and your skills that that said that you could be up high there and you weren't going to get hurt um it, yeah and i think that applies to a lot of different things that's really interesting yeah it totally is i you know i even what occurred to me just now is like phobias you know i think about people who have phobias and and you know it's a people think immediately it's a mental thing well i, I you know i'm not a scientist i'm not i'm not a, i don't have a phd but i i think you know if somebody has a phobia it's because Physically, they don't. They have a lot of unknowns. They're filling the gap space with mind or mental information that's false. That's you know tied and laced in fear and anxiety and all these disastrous things that we tend to do our do to ourselves thinking inwards. Well, you know, a phobia could be spiders, and they go, okay, the worst case scenario, they always assume, which enacts this response. But then if they physically are interacting with a spider and they realize that. It's not going to hurt them. It's not going to kill them. Then something takes place where it's this magical insertion of like this physical ability over this mental uh, phobia. And the next thing you know, they don't have a phobia. And so, you know, I, I always like to tackle those kind of mental things, whether it's somebody dealing with an issue with, uh, you know, a, a potential relationship or somebody who has a fear of firearms of physically getting in that space and then showing them that hey, there's nothing to be a scared to be scared of. I mean, we could we could work through the physical elements of this, and it's going to improve your mental game, which I think is important to correlate. Um, absolutely. So I'll, I'll tell you my phobias. We can talk about them a little bit. Or the majority of guys like um, grizzlies, bears used to be a phobia, but. Um, just like you're talking about the correlation of, of being around so many bears now, and I hunt them, you know, spot and stock with my bow, black bears, but we see a lot of grizzly bears, and just being around bears and getting comfortable with them, and also comfortable in my preparation and my decision making, that I really feel like I can keep myself safe in an encounter. And there's always that that freak incidents where you, you didn't see them coming, but I really try to be 
you know, aware of my surroundings and looking around me at all times being present. I try to look for sign of grizzly bears and look for them off in the distance, give them a wide berth. And then I know, you know, I'm prepared. If I see one inside a hundred yards, I'm going to try to sneak out of there without him seeing me. If he does know I'm there, if he does start coming at me, you know, then I have to shout and I have to wave my arms and I have to get ready for my, either my bear spray or my pistol, whatever I have to protect myself. But um, so, so yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like you get over those phobias and those fears when you when you face them, and, and when you you know feel confident in your skills to to keep yourself safe or defend yourself. And and so one of my biggest ones, um, one of my biggest phobias I have, and the guys on the podcast know about it because because I talk about it, but is those lightning storms. I hunt that early season high country mule deer, and up in the peaks. Those lightning storms are gnarly. Like it feels like they're shooting at you, and at some points in time, like you'll have you know hundreds of strikes inside a half a mile of you. But there again, too, like facing that, I get more confident and I prepare myself for it and get ready, and I know you know what to do during a lightning storm. And I think you know just like you were stating, like not not being in control uh, of your situation is, is what makes a phobia. Well, I don't have control of where that lightning strikes. I can do everything right and it can hit right where I'm at, but it it does have tendencies and it once you understand it and understand where safe, you just have to believe in that. Execute your plan, get to a safe spot and ride out those storms, but I tell you I feel way better in the season after I ride out the first couple storms than I do, you know, when I'm hiking in, when I know I'm going to face these storms up there in these multiple days. But seeing my way through that challenge is a big part of me being successful. But that's probably the the biggest phobia I have in the backcountry. Well, yeah, you know, I, I like that phobia because to me, I mean, actually, what's what's interesting is I actually have that same phobia. It's one of my only I mean, when people ask me about what I'm fearful of, I'm not really fearful of anything. Um, but but lightning is something that I grew up with in Florida. Um, and I've always I mean, I've had lightning strikes feet for me. Um, I've had bad lightning strikes when I was in ranger school that took out a, a six guys in, in my class of ranger school. Um, you know, I've, I've been around it enough. But it's what's interesting about a lightning is I think all the phobias tied into lightning, just similar to spiders, is it's a primal survival instinct, right? Because it's it's almost ingrained into our DNA to be very aware and fearful of natural things that take place that potentially are going to take our lives. Because you know, I, I imagine at some point, tens of that over the tens and hundreds of thousands of years, you know, men and our species have been confronted with lightning, um, you know, taking us out in, in open lands and bad lands. And I think the fact that uh, you have that spidey sense in you to, to be aware of that is, is a, it's a primal instinct of survival that it just needs, like you said, needs to be managed. It's that's, I, I don't even think it's something similar to a phobia because a phobia, it's almost like recklessly out of control and you get rid of it. But something like that, which seems like a primal fear, I guess, for lack of better terminology, is something that if you manage it properly, uh, leads to, you know, survival. And I, I, it's, it's funny because when you talk about it, I almost get cold sweats because <laughs> being in lightning storms, which I've been in a lot of, um, is something, um, that's so dangerous, um, and so powerful that it, it you can't help but not be fearful of it. 
<laughs> That's so funny, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm breaking out in cold sweats just thinking about it, too. Uh, I know I'm going to have to face it, and I know it's a challenge that I have to face. But, yeah, I like the way you address it because you you definitely have to respect it. And if you lose respect for it, you know, that's where you get in real trouble. And I – you know, I've had guys with me and, and, and some of the toughest guys I've ever met. And uh, I, I always know the guy that comes with me and says, oh, no, yeah, lightning doesn't bother me at all. And I just think to myself, well, you haven't been in a bad storm yet. Then, you know, you better you better buckle up because I don't care who you are. When you're in one of those storms, you feel helpless and, and, and you, you know, you don't feel like you're in control. Like you say, it's that. It's this primal instinct that's ingrained in our DNA. I think you're absolutely right. It sure feels that way in the wild. <laughs> yeah, you have nowhere to hide in the wild. No, you don't. Yeah, you feel exposed no matter – even when you're sitting in a really good position and you've done everything right, it's still nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that one gets to me um, – yeah, grizzly bears, um, I feel pretty comfortable and confident around those. I would say – like another one that I face um, would be uh, rattlesnakes. So rattlesnakes are in a lot of the places I hunt. And, um, you know, I, I don't really worry about them too much. I, I think, I again, I just have a healthy respect for them. I see them trail running, but I just don't let it affect where I go run, where I go hunt, and I try to just be aware of my surroundings and, and aware of them. Where it kind of gets inside your head is when you get into a patch where you're running into a couple of them. Um, or I've had it at night where one rattles in front of me on the ridge and I hear 10 answer it. You know, that's that's where it gets nerve-wracking. You know, my headlamp's going dim and you're going, oh, no, what a, a bunch of landmines out here. But, you know, I'd, I'd say that's another phobia that guys have or another backcountry hurdle or challenge that you have to prepare yourself for as snakes. Uh, you ever deal with snakes on, on any of your, um, your, your missions that you were on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've actually, you know, I've been... I've been a whole bunch of different countries where there's a whole bunch of different animals and uh, reptiles that will kill you. But what's interesting about snakes is the fact that, um, you know, you could, you wouldn't even realize that you're on top of them. You know, you could be laying down your sleeping bag on top of them and then you take one strike. And what's, what's, what's crazy in survival is it, you could be remote and one snake bite, you get bit and now what are you going to do? And so that's what's so scary about uh, uh, snakes to me is the simple fact that, you know, one snake bite, not even realizing. I had a I had a guy that we knew. We didn't know him personally, but we were associated with him that actually was in special operations selection and got bit by a water moccasin and didn't realize it um, and, and didn't realize he was in a, a, a bed or a nest of water moccasins. And he got bit a dozen times and actually died in a, in a dry canal um, because he went into shock. And then they get, they didn't find him for days. And so, you know, snakes are no joke. I, you know, I've been in Africa. I've been in uh, a, a lot of the Middle East. And there's a whole bunch of snakes that will kill you. I just stay away from them. Like you said, that whole respect thing is, you know, managing your, your expectations and understanding the terrain that you're in. And, you know, I, I do my best to avoid any creatures uh, that are going to potentially kill you. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, man, that sounds horrible about that guy and that drainage ditch. But yeah, it sounds like you've definitely faced him in it. When you're in snake country, they're not everywhere. They're, you, you, you almost, if you let your mind take control or wander off, like it'll almost convince you there's a snake behind every rock or every bush. And it's just not that way. Uh, aware of your surroundings as you travel through country and, and you have to look out for them and look where you're stepping your feet and pay a little bit more attention. But Again, it's that fine line that we talk about of not letting it control you, uh, but but also respecting it. Uh, you know, but doesn't it seem like you can avoid them for the most part, even in in difficult terrain or real dense vegetation? It, you can be aware of your surroundings, and and you're not going to step on one every ten steps. It seems like you can avoid them if you're just paying attention. Yeah, if you have the right, you know, it's that whole situation awareness you talk about. You know, it's like, you know creatures that are out there people don't realize it but you know a lot of the animals that are even apex predators for example they don't want to mess with men they don't want to mess with human beings they just they don't they're not you know actively hunting human beings it's just not their taste or their flavor and so they they're typically trying to avoid things that are bigger or things that are unknown and so if you just stay out of their way they're going to stay out of your way for the most part i mean um i've been in you know, backcountry trail running, Arizona, Colorado, and, you know, I've run by rattlers rattling as I ran by, but it's like one of those things, you know, it's a whole curiosity killed the cat. A lot of these accidents that happen is you, know, you accidentally step on a snake, you get bit, or people hear something and they, they try to see what it is. They try to engage or, you know, the guy taking a selfie um, with the, the grizzly bear in the background, that those are going to be the guys that, that, um, you know, potentially get into some uh, precarious situations. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, there could always be that freak accident, but a lot of times, yeah, you, you bring it on yourself by, by making a bad decision. So yeah, just, uh, being aware of your surroundings, like you're saying. So, and, and probably the biggest killer in the backcountry uh, would be so simple as like a, a hypothermia or you know getting lost or you know just just being able to have confidence in your in your wood sense in your wood wise um but but i'd say hypothermia would be a big one yeah you know it's interesting because yeah, i was prepared for this and we talk about it all the time in survival you know when people say hey what what do i need to look out for what do i need to be prepared for what's going to kill me the quickest and I always go back to the elements, exposure, hypothermia. That's what's going to kill you the fastest. It's, it's the elk, you know, drinking water two to three days. Uh, typically, you know, if you're mountain, if you're in the back country, you're going to have water sources. It's not going to be a significant issue, especially right off the bat. Food, not even something that you even have to worry about. I mean, you can go a month. There's people who have gone over 45 days, 60 days with no food. What's going to kill you is you go out and you're in backcountry and you get lost and you fail to navigate. That's one variable or one element to uh, probably uh, a bad situation turning worse. But the actual elements, you know, there's a 30 degree sway in some of these backcountry, um, especially high elevation places where you could be, you know, in a T-shirt and you know, cool pants hiking on the back of a mountain. And at night, you're going to have to be in something thermal. And so, you know, exposure to the elements where you go hypothermic in a short period of time, it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. Because once you're hypothermic, 
your decision-making processes, your ability to get warm and to recover are greatly diminished. In fact, a lot of, you know, a lot of the mountaineering guys that are killed are killed on descent because the descent is a, is a, there's a higher risk, but, but they just simply go to sleep. They're exposed to the elements, their, their systems running on autopilot. They start to shut down. Their body's trying to conserve energy. Your body can't keep up with it. You go into shock. You might just go to sleep as a, as a symptom and then you just never wake up. And that's super dangerous, especially when we're talking about high elevation. No, you could be talking about high elevation in the middle of summertime. Um, and, and, and some of those, you know, above 10, 11, 12, 13,000 feet. Um, it could be freezing at, at night. Yeah, and it it comes back to 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 being prepared. You know, having a good clothing system in place, having a good shelter. And and us backcountry hunters, we get to be such minimalists that we're always trying to leave something behind. But there's necessary items you need that are going to keep you safe back there. And so, you know, having that that rain jacket and see, I can make do without my rain pants. But that getting wet, you know, that's um that's where you really lose your body heat or where you get in danger. You know, to me, it isn't even the normal conditions that are going to get because you're so well prepared for them it's that downpour you know and it's that downpour on that muley where you didn't bring your rain jacket with you ditched your pack to be light and to be stealthy and so you went over and that's where you get into trouble or you know your shelter leaks you know you these shelters nowadays they make them so light and such thin material that you have to waterproof them you know nearly every year and if you don't waterproof them and you get one of those downpours when you're in the backcountry it could start dripping on you it drips on you and all of a sudden your bag's wet or your clothing is wet you know and, and then you're getting in real trouble where you you know you have to keep yourself warm by making body heat by getting out there and it it all comes back to that foundation you talk to uh, you know mental fortitude and and, and having the right attitude will get you out of any situation but but yeah you can get in a bad situation like that hypothermia like you were saying it affects your decision making process and and all of a sudden you're not making smart decisions because your your core body temperature is it has dropped and so it, it's just something that you that you have to make sure you're prepared for and when it does come in and when those rain showers or those big snowstorms you know having confidence in your skills to be getting in there and even you know, it, it goes back to the basic survival skills of, of fire making. And, you know, I, you know, we all carry fire starters with us of different types, but it's amazing how difficult a fire is to make when you're in wet conditions after a big snowstorm or a big rainstorm. And if you don't have the skills to make a fire, it doesn't matter what fire starter you have, you can't get one going. And so, you know, having those skills that you can rely upon when you get in a bad situation are so important. Yeah, you know, the third part to that um, outside of physical uh, training is skill sets for us. You know, we talk about skill sets a lot. And, you know, like you said, skill sets are very important. And the equipment that you utilize in those skill sets is equally as important because that facilitates your survival. And if you don't have the experiences, like, you know, I see people all the time. They carry all these high-speed lighters. They carry these high-speed fire starters. Um, but if you don't, for example, people think fire starter, which could be, you know, it could be a ferro rod, it could be magnesium. They're striking a spark. It doesn't strike a fire. It strikes a spark that you need to initiate a flame to start a fire. So it's not going to meet people think immediately that, hey, if I strike this, I'm going to have a fire started. And like you said, when you're in the backcountry, you're at higher elevation. So the air is thinner. The oxygen is depleted. And then you look at the saturation of the soil. If you don't have dry material, 
Um, if you haven't even carried, I mean, there's some, I, I recommend to people to carry in some kind of tinder or flint in order to start that fire, whether that's, you know, that could be petroleum jelly. It could be, uh, hell, it could actually be tinder in a Ziploc bag. But you need that little fire source to kickstart that flame in order you, for you to get an actual adequate fire that's going to retain or sustain a hot uh, core body temperature. Because once you start crashing off, you know, it's, it's, that, it's the, it's the uh, snowball effect. Once you get into a, a certain uh, level of a couple degrees outside of your core body temperature, your decision-making processes and all the things that you think are rational are going to become irregular. And everything's going to become more difficult. Your, your fine motor skills, your decision-making processes. And if you think you can't, if you can make a fire on the side of a ridge line in optimal conditions, then when there's, you know, austere uh, conditions and you have to do the same, that's when you need to train. That's when you need to evaluate your, your, your skill sets. You know, it's again, like you said, with a tent. I mean, a lot of people buy these lightweight tents that could, you know, stick inside of a small, stuff pack and it doesn't take up any weight but they're testing it in optimal conditions it's sitting in the middle of a of a outdoor store on a neat display but how is that going to be on the side of a mountain or how is it going to hold up to a torrential downpour and so all those things are you know have to be evaluated with your individual skill sets which again add to that resiliency add to that uh, mindset as you're working through what you want to carry that's going to optimize your survival you know, in our, our survival kit, one of the things that we uh, always preach is have a space blanket, you know, a, a simple Mylar space blanket, uh, which is a couple bucks, um, could save your life because you could retain heat with it, meaning you could use it as a blanket in an emergency type situation, um, but you could also use it to reflect heat. So if you have a small fire, you could build up a, a barrier and then actually deflect all that heat onto yourself especially as an individual. So there's a whole bunch of different things that you could do. But again, like, like you said, if, if you don't practice them um, and you don't evaluate them yourself, I mean, it's, it's just really a, a bag of uh, useless equipment unless you've had experience with it. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's correct. So those space blankets, um, you recommend those and, and you think they're, uh, well, they're so lightweight and easy to carry with you. To be honest, I've never carried one with me. I didn't think that they, you know, would help that much in one of those scenarios, but but you think wrapping yourself up in there retains that body heat. I like what you said about like using it to reflect the fire off, like stretching it across and reflecting that fire. So you really believe in those? Yeah, absolutely do. I, you know, I, I, just like a hunter would be in special operations, everything that I carried in my rucksack, you know, our our, our recce rucks, which were prepared for three to five day missions, carry. You know, early on in the war, we're over 120 pounds. And then as we got smarter and more optimized and started resourcing civilian uh, outdoor hiking and a lot of the things from the hunting industry in space, we started making everything lighter. And the reason I like Mylar space blankets is because, one, besides the fact that it could retain body heat, it could be used as a deflection or reflection source for fire. It's also made with fluorescent like the DS-17 or fluorescent uh, paneling and color that can be seen for hundreds of miles, uh, whether it's an airplane, whether it's somebody on the ground. You could actually take one, put it be between two sticks. One side's reflective with a signal reflection, so you could actually use light to reflect during daylight. 
But the other side is actually uh, the orange color, the fluorescent color that can be seen for uh, hundreds of miles. And if, if you're in a situation where you're you know, on the side of a mountain, for example, and you need that signal because you don't have any other means, it's really good. So it, to me, it's the it's one of the most functional multipurpose uh, uses. Also, you know what a lot of people don't realize is when you're injured in the field, for example, let's say you trip and you break your leg and, it, and you have a compound fracture. Well, if you're bleeding, your core body temperature is, is lowering and there's a high chance of you going into shock. If you're by yourself, you going into shock from a bleed, it could be a minor bleed, um, it would, would exacerbate a pretty basic trauma situation into something potentially catastrophic where there's no recovery. Well, what I teach people is, hey, if you get to a point where you, you're either treating somebody or treating yourself that has a bleed, the first thing you want to do is get that blanket out and start retaining your core body temperature because your temperature is going to drop when you start bleeding. And you were, you want to retain that because going into shock with friends or by yourself is is catastrophic. And if you're to that point, um, it takes a high level of care in order to maintain or sus sustain that person's blood pressure. Um, so I, I recommend it for all kinds of reasons, um, e even water procurement. I mean, if you're if you're procuring water and you're in a, a bad situation, we use it for evasion. But let's say you're on the side of a mountain and you have to get off the mountain, but you you're not uh, anywhere where you could retain water. Um, you could actually retain the water because it's it's not porous. It's it's like a trash bag, essentially, that you could collect the water with. So it has a whole bunch of functional multipurpose uses that I think for the price point of like two to three dollars for the size it takes up in your ruck, which is about, you know, a three inch by five inch square. Um, by about um, three quarters of an inch thick um, and weighing an ounce, there's there's nothing that beats it when putting it in the back of a backpack. Okay, it's going in my bag. You talked me into it. Yeah, I like uh, multi-use items that you can use um, for, for all different scenarios. Uh, and that was a really good tip that you mentioned about bleeding and, and keeping warm, uh, whether it's the, that blanket or even throwing on your extra jackets that you're packing with you, getting in your sleeping bag right away. So you don't go into shock. That was something that I didn't know about either, Mike. Um, and, and so you sell like through your company, uh, Fieldcraft Survival, um, you guys have survival kits I saw on there. Um, maybe just walk me through a couple of those survival kit items that you have in your kit and that all of us backcountry hunters should have. So, yeah, we do sell, we sell survival kits. We sell minimalist medical kits, a whole bunch of different stuff for survival. And, you know, the, the form factor of the survival kit that we made, actually I was a, after my special operations career, I contracted overseas for a government agency for about two years and so I was in places like Yemen, Pakistan, uh, Africa, where, you know, I was in civilian clothes. I wasn't representing a military and I had to sustain my own survivability. And so I, I didn't have the opportunity of carrying a Mali, you know, huge rucksack of full of kit. So whatever I carried, it had to be minimalist, but it didn't have uh, it couldn't have a military signature on it. So, you know, the, the survival kits uh, that we sell are are basically on average about four inches by six inches and a few inches thick. And it, enco it encompasses all the things that you need to survive a set period of time. And we base that time um, based on the water. 
uh, sourcing. And so it's based off a 72-hour period. Some of the things that are in it and that I recommend that uh, all your listeners carry, especially when backcountry hunting, is the ability to contain or retain water and to um, sanitize it. You know, a lot of people think about, you know, a lot of people carry Nalgene bottles, for example, and that's actually a good thing to carry. If you can carry that on your pack, that's good. It's not the lightest thing in the world. Uh, it's not so multi-functional um, where it has serves a lot of purposes. It's really made for retaining water. In, in our kit, we actually have a blivet or a bladder that's a one-liter bladder that rolls up really neat because that's not my primary source of retaining water. You know, I'm going to have a Camelback. I'm going to have a Nalgene bottle that I have quick access to uh, to stay hydrated. But in an emergency-type situation, I want to be able to run up on a stream or a body of water, retain it, and sanitize it. So we have actually sodium chloride. Um, or I'm sorry, chlorine dioxide, which is basically a, a, a bleach pill that sanitizes and gets rid of 99.99% of all the bad stuff and bacteria and virus that's going to be in water. And so, you know, outside of the sole space blanket, which is the mylar blanket that I already described, the second priority, the highest priority is staying hydrated. You know, hydration, um, you know, the average man, you know, I'm, I'm 225 pounds. I'm a bigger guy. I'm gonna less. Uh, I'm gonna last a, a lot less time time than most guys because of uh, how much water I need. If I don't have a, you know an adequate day of hydrating in a first world country, I'm cramping at the gym. And so you imagine you're in a survival type situation. That's going to compound itself and get worse and worse. Cramps turn into um, you know abdominal cramps, organs shutting down, and the next thing you know. Um, you're in a, a, a catastrophe, for example. And so um, hydration is, is, is key. Another thing that we have is a, a, it's a uh, light my fire fire starter. We have a fire starter as a contingency, right? It's the alternate to when things go bad. But I always recommend I, – I don't sell this in the kit because I can't ship it that way. But I always recommend people get Bic lighters, typical little uh, Bic lighters and they stick them everywhere. They stick them in their backpack. They stick them in their survival kits. They stick them in their glove box because a big lighter has 10,000 strikes of flame. And so you're not striking a spark to initiate a flame. You literally have a flame already started. So if you need a fire and a crunch, that's your fire source. And like you said, you know, when you're, we're talking about hypothermia, which to me is one of the biggest risks in the backcountry um, that could potentially turn dangerous and deadly, you need to be able to start a fire immediately. You know, a lot of the propane, uh, a lot of the lighters have to be tested out the altitudes that you're going to hunt in. You know, the, a big mistake for a lot of people is they buy matches and they're standard box matches and they go at elevation, they strike and it goes out. It's because there's not enough oxygen to feed that fire. Well, that's why you want hurricane matches, which, which are tested at higher elevation which won't go out with a little bit of precipitation. So uh, fire is the next critical component. The last component, which uh, we always talk about, is signal. You know, Kurt has a has an interesting story in Iraq where he was on the battlefield and had to signal uh, a Cobra gunship with a, a signal mirror. You know, we use signal mirrors. Uh, typically, civilians are using mirrors in, in the field or in camping 
you know, to brush your teeth or, or to shave. But a signaling mirror as a reflection tool is obviously good for search and rescue. Um, but a, an additional thing to that is um, the fact that we put um, the VS-17 panel, fluorescent panel on the space blanket, but also we have a whistle. You know, when you're in the back country in the middle of nowhere and you snap your leg, uh, you imagine, you know, I can imagine with you spending the, the amount of time that you spend potentially alone in the back country hunting. When you break your leg and you're re- in a remote location, there's, you know, there's heroic stories of people dragging themselves miles to safety. But there's also a lot of um, sad stories of people perishing in the same sense. So having something that you could signal by blowing a whistle, by allowing people to to identify your location audibly is hugely important as well. Those are just a few priorities. There's more stuff in the kit, but those are probably the most important that I recommend everybody having. Yeah. Um, yeah. The signaling that uh, so overlooked on my part. Yeah. I'm definitely going to change my kit as I go into the backcountry this year. But uh, no, that's that's super. And I like um, I, I like the how much you stressed um, the water and hydration. And and that's another major thing, you know, as we hunt this high country or we're hunting deserts or whatever the case, but even in the high country, like keys to success, you know, and a lot of these mule deer are, are getting to where there isn't many water sources and these deer can get their, their water from their food source or from the dew off the grass so they can live up above the water sources. And so a lot of times it's trying to manage your water and, and I don't need as much water. I'm a smaller guy. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 150, 160 pounds. And so like I can get through 32 to 50 ounces a day. I can get through for multiple days until I hydrate, but you just can't walk that line. That hydration is so important. And I had like uh, hunting Hawaii here where it just got back from um, out there. I can't go a day and not have 132 ounces of water. You just sweat it out of yourself. It's not the standard places that I'm used to. It's not the the drier climate uh, of the deserts or you know some of the high country there in Hawaii. You just sweat it out of yourself. And so, yeah, if, if you're not prepared, like I had a buddy – um, you know, that, that I've talked about on the podcast and, and he got in real bad shape in Hawaii. His friend forgot his water. So he split half his water and they ended up way back in this spot and, uh, coming back and, and, uh, he, he started to have organ failure like a day later just by pushing it so far. And so it's, it's just a, a line that you, you, you really can't walk. You've got to make sure that you're hydrated and that you keep to those water sources. Like in the high country, mapping your water sources is a big deal figuring out where you can fill up and where you can't and then um yeah not pushing it too far like dropping down to that water source even if you've got to lose 2000 feet of elevation to go down and fill up those water bottles so you can get back on top and and hunt effectively cuz nothing will take you down quicker than than lack of water like you said cramping um uh, there, it, it can just take hold of you to where you know you can make yourself sick to where then you can't cover the the miles to the water, you know. So it's a dangerous situation, especially you know when you're hunting solo. Absolutely, I think it's it's crit- it's critical. It's a part of survival, but it's a a part of maintaining that kind of optimal level of performance that you need in the hunt period. You know, it's like it's that whole that whole mindset. It's like we're you know, we're not trying to survive. We're trying to thrive in everything that we're doing. So, so to, to stay ahead of that, you know, like like what, what I tell people is when they when you get thirsty, for example, you're already a bad position because when you when you have a mechanism, uh, you know, a, a biological mechanism that says 
oh, you're thirsty, you need water, that already means that you're dehydrated. That means you're behind it. So you need to stay ahead of that by staying adequately hydrated. And that goes for every single skill set that you're doing. Just staying ahead of it, thinking about that, um, training in advance prior to the execution of a, of a real-life mission or a real-life hunt is also just as critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, mean, I really like your approach. Uh, your your approach applies to to not only life but backcountry hunting and and survival. And I I love that term of modern survival. Um, you have so much insight into it. Uh, it's really great to talk to you, Mike. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, I really appreciate appreciate having me on, and I actually look forward. Hopefully, we can do a hunt or something this year because, you know, I, I'm not afraid to say that I'm actually learning. Uh, how to do hunting. And I've been hunting Taliban and Al-Qaeda across the world. It's it's time to hunt elk to fill the freezer. And I, I, I'm actually enthralled with it. The community, the brotherhood, the sisterhood. I mean, it's just something that um, is near and dear to me. And it's it's the community that me and Kurt have been looking for. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm interested in, in doing it more and, and learning about it more. Uh, and I appreciate you having on, and I appreciate your knowledge and perspective, and it was an honor to be on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks a bunch. Yeah, we'll keep in touch, Mike, and we'll see if we can't put something together. Yeah, um, that that's so great that you're finding backcountry hunting, and you're right. It's such a great community, and uh, I think it'd be the perfect fit for you guys. I think you guys would fall in love with it. So, um, yeah, careful what you wish for, right? You find another hobby or another passion that you have to put a bunch of time in. But, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Like I say, such good insight. So, uh, and, and then you guys also have a podcast that you guys do, uh, Fieldcraft survival podcast uh so guys make sure you check that out as well and uh yeah just thanks again mike i really appreciate it yeah thanks brian have a good one you too all right guys that's a wrap uh really fun conversation with mike glover um the guy's articulate and intelligent and um it's just fun to have these long form conversations with with people that I, I don't usually get to sit down with and meet, and um, it's an opportunity for me to see what makes them tick and kind of their their mindset in, in life, and he's such a, a driven guy. I got a ton out of the podcast uh, uh, just, you know, being able to compare, you know, uh, what he's done in his business, you know, with, with my life and in my business and, and backcountry hunting, and uh, there's so many correlations there that it's it's really fun to have those conversations. So um, thanks to Mike for being on the podcast. Mike has a, a bow and he's been practicing with it. I think backcountry hunting would be the perfect fit for him. I think he'd fall in love with it. So we'll try to, I'm going to try to help him out and try to figure out some hunts he can go on with that bow and, and get some experience and uh, he'll be hooked before we know it. Uh, uh, I think he'll fall in love with it. I think it'd be a perfect fit for him. So um, just a, a fun conversation. Appreciate him being on. Um, sponsor for today's show is Six Hour. So you may know Six Hour from their pistols. They also have an optic line. So they have different binoculars, spotting scopes, mini spotting scopes. Um, they they also have their their rangefinder, and that's what I'm familiar with. Their rangefinders. They have multiple different ones. Um, it's amazing what you can do linking to that app on your phone to to figure out everything you need to be able to make a long range shot. Um, it's also good for bow hunters. It's got a powerful laser. It'll shoot through grass. You can do last target priority, first target priority. Um, you can do, uh, it'll do angles. Um, so it'll compensate automatically for the, the angles. Um, and it, it's just a clear, crisp, 
glass that you can look through and see your target. Um, quick readings back, uh, easy to see display, um, just really great rangefinders. Some of the best on the market. So make sure to check those guys out. And uh, thanks to Six Hour for sponsoring the podcast. Okay, and um, Eastman's, like I say, we're just finishing up that tour. Um, really fun to get together with those guys and talk over the future of the podcast. And um, it, it's just, it's one big laugh from start to finish. Um, you know, the, the, the Eastman's, they're really savvy in, in business and they know so much about Western hunting. Um, I got to sit down and, and talk with Guy at different spots that he's excited about and different theories on hunting. He knows so much about hunting the West and especially hunting Wyoming. And um, so we talk about that, and then, uh, gosh, we just had a great conversation about fishing. Guy just loves to fish and loves to streamer fish for for big browns, and yeah, he's he's been um, so successful doing it and caught some really good ones. And so to talk over back and forth, different techniques we use and different rivers we fished, and talk over steelheading and. One night, I think we talked fishing for two or three hours, but uh, just just really great guys. Um, so so that was a, a fun tour, and we finished that up, and um, we'll be releasing some of those podcasts to you. But uh, just can't thank you guys enough for all the support. We're at 101 episodes, which is is crazy. Um, so uh, just want to keep this keep this train rolling, and I want to keep providing you guys with with great next level content and. Uh, try to help you become better western hunters that's the the point of this whole deal and i'm um, getting super excited for hunting season um man is this going to be a fun year i can't wait to leave it all on the line and and uh, see what see what i can come up with um got some great hunts back-to-back hunts planned and um yeah i'm just going to go like a madman and really enjoy my time in the hills and um, have some, be a little bit ahead on podcasts, but then I'm just going to try to record with everybody I get together with. And man, when you, when you go on one of these hunts or you're on a backcountry mule deer hunt for eight days, I mean, you think, you know, hunting and I do, I, uh, you know, backcountry hunting is my life. I live it, but it, it's wild when you go and you go hunt for multiple days on one of these hunts, just the information learned and information ingrained into you and in different techniques and outside the box and like it it's all in the forefront of your mind you go on these hunts and um it it just brings this I don't know this crisp reality to to backcountry hunting or to stalking or whatever the case and so yeah I've been good about carrying my notebook with me and writing down notes but I really think some of these best podcasts are right when I return from some of these hunts and and also trying to trying to capture some of that excitement of these you know hopefully I have some success this season and so you know telling those stories you know when it's fresh in my head or um, with a buddy, you know, uh, I, I think is is really great content for the podcast. So I'm going to work really hard at doing that this year and recording those as I'm kind of hunting and thinking of, of good themes for the podcast, which will make for good conversation. So I'm just really excited at the the future of everything. And um, I just can't thank you guys enough. I mean, you guys are the ones that, are, that have built this entire thing um, with your following. And I, I really appreciate you, you guys. Um, you know, reaching out to guests. I've said that before, but it just brings such weight to the podcast I have on these guests. And I've had, um, I've had people reach out to them and tell them how much they like the podcast. And that just means the world to me. You know, it lets those guys know that people are listening and people like their, their podcasts and and the information they shared because, you know, coming on our podcast is a, a little bit different deal. Like, um, we, we get into, 
we get into the details uh, of what makes them successful and what makes them tick and they're willing to share this information and this is information that they've learned through hard knocks and years of backcountry bow hunting that they're sharing to you guys to to shorten your learning curve and to to help you become better hunters so I, i just can't thank our guests enough for for being so upfront and honest and authentic and um it really makes for a good podcast so uh but thanks to you guys for all the support appreciate it uh i better keep rolling here with my day uh thursday gonna get through my week here and get to the weekend um i've been running like a madman lately and shooting like a madman and um I'm just in full train mode for a season, but also uh, fitting in a little bit of fun too. Um, That salmon fly hatch is going off on our, on our river here, right out my back door on the Madison's. And they're like this three inch dry fly that comes off and all these trout key into them. And right now it's high water. And so it's got, you know, it's flowing really good, like 3000 CFS and it pushes all these fish to the banks. And so these, these fish lie on these banks and underneath trees and willows. And so it's this technical fishing of throwing this dry fly in the brush and getting this drift. And then all of a sudden it's like a white shark taking a seal. The, the biggest fish in the river are all keyed into this dry fly and they just explode on your fly back in the brush. And you're just in for a rodeo. Um, the trout are so hard fighting this year and, um, it's just, it's the best fly fishing of the entire year. So I'm trying to get out in the evenings and doing that walks here and there. Uh, I've got like my honey do list. Uh, it's not really a honey do list. I put it on myself really, but just, you know, you're constantly upkeep doing upkeep to your house and, um, you know, trying to make it better. And I've had my family living in the dirt for like two years. I have no landscaping. I live in the prairie. It's a beautiful spot, but I, I finally got some landscaping done um, with some mounds and I put in small yard front and back. So I've been watering that and worried about it. My sod's drying out and you know, that's just uh but, but it's coming good. We're supposed to get some rain for the next three days or so. So that'll, that'll sure help. But um, really nice to have a yard. We've got to keep off it right now, a couple weeks for it to, to be able to what root down into the dirt or whatever. So, um, but that's really cool. So working on, I got that done, got my house painted. Like I'm just trying to set myself up for season and, and have myself ready to, to get after it. So, um, but, but thanks you guys for all the support. Um, I better keep rolling. We'll talk to you soon.